Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Douglas Colbeth was one of the founders and the CEO of Spyglass, the company that licensed the Mosaic browser from the NCSA, and then, if you'll remember, later did a deal with Microsoft to license that same computer code to Microsoft so that it could create Internet Explorer. In today's episode, Douglas is going to give us the other side of the Mosaic diaspora story. Basically, as all those Netscape people that we've spoken to were off in California creating Navigator, we finally get to hear about the other efforts to turn browsers into a business, as well as the deal-making and fascinating stories that led to the browser wars. There's intrigue here between Netscape, Microsoft, AOL, and more. So it's a fantastic conversation. Please enjoy this episode with Douglas Colbeth. Douglas Colbeth, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Well, great to be here, Brian. So um, I want to start by going into your career uh, before we uh, get into uh, the Spyglass story. But it it looks like that um, from basically day one, you were working in computers either in, was it marketing or sales? Or or what was your early career like? Well, uh, believe it or not, um, in the very early days coming out of school, I was uh, a programmer. But shortly after getting into the workforce, now this would have been uh, the end of the 70s, mm-hmm. I crossed over into what I would call uh, sales and operations uh, at, a, at a fairly young age when I was in my mid-20s. Mm-hmm. So I had spent quite a bit of time in sales and operations, and I kind of look at that as the majority of my background. But uh, what stimulated my interest was taking computer science courses in undergrad and graduate school. Where did you go to college? I went to a, a small Catholic college in upstate New York named Siena College. And I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute for some graduate studies in uh, quantitative economics and computer science. Hmm. Economics and computer science in one. That's sort of unusual. Yeah, it was. And, and the key um, back then was it was a small community. I mean, it's... Uh, a lot of us knew each other, and the whole advent of the PC was just four or five years around the corner. So it was it was a great time to get into you know what I call the computer science uh, field. So uh, just to be clear, though, um, generally in the eighties, how would you describe? Were you more on the operations end, the marketing end, sales end? What you're working in computers, but yeah, so. Right. Good question. So when you get into the 80s, I, 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 became, I went into sales, but mainly sales management. And then even the beginning, I, went, I, I was involved in, a, uh, in the early days, I ran a large section in the United States for a successful mini computer company called Prime Computer out of Boston. Hmm. And that was most of the 80s. And I was a regional director with them. And um and then as we turned to 1990, which was the big move, that's when we started Spyglass. 
Okay, so let, let's get into it. Um, can you describe for me um, how Spyglass gets started? Is it uh, is it started by the university or the NCSA, or is it do people approach them and and say we'd like to uh, spin off some of your technology? What's what's the story of Spyglass's founding? Yeah, so Spyglass um, was started privately um, with the help of two venture capitalists, uh, Greylock partners and Venrock partners. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, um, two of the four of us, uh, two of the four co-founders, um, were employees at the national supercomputer center before leaving those jobs to become, uh, co-founders of Spyglass. And, the the four founders were, were, uh, were Tony Kane, uh, C-A-I-N-E, Brand Fortner, F-O-R-T-N-E-R, and Brand is his first name, B-R-A-N-D. He was uh, uh, one of the uh, folks that came from uh, the National Supercomputer Center, and Tim Krauskopf, and Tim uh, also came from the uh, uh, Supercomputer Center as well, and, uh, and Tim was uh, one of the key software developers. Uh, just as an FYI, Brand uh, is. I'm going to speak with him next week. Um, but oh, great. Uh, uh, Tim, w- I'm unclear about this. Was Tim one of the ones responsible for inventing the NCSA Telnet program, or did I get that wrong? He, he was involved in that. Okay. Yes, and that was prior to Spyglass. Yeah. Okay, right. So that's probably '86, maybe later '80s, or something like that. Yes. So yeah. again, um, so you. Who, whose idea is it to create this company whose idea is to try to find commercial to commercialize some of these things that the supercomputer center is working on? Yeah, it, I, I really the idea of commercializing technologies out of the supercomputer center, I think, clearly was uh, Tony uh, Brand and Tim who approached me um, because remember, I was so much older than them. I was 35, and they were about 25. Mm-hmm. And they 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 wanted an adult supervisor who could also uh, raise money. So and, that was that was you know they recruited me basically. And what role does um, the University of Illinois play in this? Are they is it sort of like your partners with them and the NCSA? Like, what's no. the structure of this? Zero. There was zero relationship with the University of Illinois for the first three years. And then in 1993, we made a very strategic relationship with the university. Well, actually, that's okay. This is something that in all my research and reading about this, I'm unclear about. What is the relationship between the University of Illinois and the NCSA? Is Are they tied together in some way or is it a completely independent research no. center how does that work well it's it's a the national it used to be called ncsa i'm not sure what it's called today but ncsa was one of many what they call supercomputer centers and these were centers that had their own cray research computers you know supercomputers and they were funded um by the federal government, I believe the Department of Defense, 
but I, it may be the National Science Foundation. I think, was, yeah, I think it's National Science Foundation. Actually. Yeah, if it's the National Science Foundation, then what they did is they typically would house those research centers at major universities like the University of Illinois. So uh, Brand would be able to tell you, but I think the paycheck would say University of Illinois for those people, but the funding for the National Supercomputer Center uh, probably came from uh, the NSF. Sp- yep. Spyglass is a um, is a company that's capitalized, and and its intention is to um, find some of the projects that 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 are coming out of this research center and see if if there are applications in in a commercial sense. Yes, is is what are what are some of these before we start talking about Mosaic? I, I kept reading about things like. Um, data visualization software tools? What are, what are some of the early yes. things that you're commercializing? So what we did is we would take publicly domain available technology and we didn't so much take the software, we would take the idea and we would write um, what we call commercial grade software and uh, the initial applications um, were interesting. They were for what we call image analysis. Hmm. So we would, we would uh, build imaging software products that would run on the Mac and they'd run on the PC to enable scientists to model 2D and 3D elements. So the first three years of the company's life, we were selling Macintosh and PC-based applications primarily to scientists to help in the areas of uh, medical research, Hmm. um, uh, you know, storm-type modeling, earthquake modeling, uh, pretty much all science-based. And we had a fairly small market of scientists that... um, and one of our biggest and most um, enthusiastic users, ironically, was the one guy, and I will tell you, one guy started the World Wide Web. Mm. And he was an astrophysicist by the name of Tim Berners-Lee. Mm-hmm. I get a kick out of all these people who like the claim they started the Internet. <laughs> well, the Internet had been around 25 years before that. Right. And we had used it for email and things like that. But the World Wide Web, which is a very simple software layer that sits on top of the Internet, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, That was invented by Tim Berners-Lee along with some graduate students in CERN, Switzerland. Right. And the average person doesn't know that. Um, Tim Tim did not want to commercialize his uh, idea. I believe he's still working in the academia. Um. At MIT, I may be wrong about that, but I think he is. And um, everyone else took credit for it, but he was the one. Ironically, Tim was one of our customers at Spyglass because he was an astrophysicist. And, of course, Brand Fortner, one of our founders, was also an astrophysicist. So, again, these are these are software programs that if I'm a meteorologist, it helps me to visualize data sets and yes. uh, complex uh, numbers and things like that, put them into some sort of a visual. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, 
this is a successful uh, enterprise before the web browser comes around? I will tell you what. It, I wouldn't call it successful. I would, it was one of the reasons we pivoted after three years. We, we built it up to a few million dollars a year in a break-even business, but it wasn't exciting to any of us, um, whether it be the venture capitalists or, or the founders. We were interested in building something more significant. So when we first saw, and by the way, the original name was the Hypertext Linking Network. Mm -hmm. Okay, it wasn't World Wide Web. But when we would, uh, when we saw that, we immediately thought there was a bunch of different business paths we could take if we pivot quickly um, away from selling just to scientists and we look at technologies that could be leveraged by consumers. So as soon as you see the web, you see that it could be a, a consumer technology? Oh, my God. We, now, you got to remember, at this point, after three years, we had $85,000 in the bank. <laughs> we had raised originally about $2 million. Mm -hmm. We only had 85000 left, and, uh, but we saw the opportunity, and uh, we bought an awful lot of really bad pizza one day on a Saturday. And we talked about completely pivoting the business. And we looked at a bunch of different business models, some of which we didn't think um, we could execute. And some of which we thought we'd be in a good position to execute, even if we raised some money. So um, we wrote down on a whiteboard all the different types of models that we saw, because when I first saw the Hypertext Linking Network, it, it was basically a research paper with a bunch of embedded uh, hyperlinks. Mm -hmm. But when I saw that document, I said, wait a second, you could build a catalog, you could build an online catalog. You know, this user interface is much better than Windows or Mac. Somebody's going to try to out Microsoft, Microsoft, which is what Netscape did. Um, we, we saw the need for like an Amazon-like uh, business or the opportunity for it. We saw a bunch of different businesses, but because of where we were located, we had about 17 employees. We had um, very little cash in the bank. Uh, we thought we could become an arms dealer to the big, big companies in the world that want to leverage Internet technology. So that became the Spyglass business model. Hmm. Um, can you tell me either personally yourself or within Spyglass, do you remember when you first heard about Mosaic specifically and, and the web browser that, that takes off within the NCSA? It, it, it was clearly 1993. Mm -hmm. I, I may be off a month, a few months here, but I, I think it was beginning of 93. And um, are you guys watching this sort of explode? And, and by explode, I always have to caveat that you know, there's not very many people on the web at this time, but um, it quickly oh. becomes the most popular browser on the web, given that there's only a few million people on it. But are you guys watching this take off and seeing maybe maybe that's the ticket right there? Well, yeah. And in fact, when I saw it, um, it was getting publicity, right? Um, it was freely available mm -hmm. for download. And that's when I began my work on getting an exclusive distribution agreement. 
uh, or exclusive, exclusive license with the university. Okay, so before I, I do want to get in into that, but um, so within the NCSA, did this start as a research product, and then all of a sudden, over the course of time, they see that it's something bigger than that? Like, what what's your sense of the Mosaic project within the NCSA, and and what the say the higher ups at the NCSA thought of it? Well, yeah, and uh, the NCSA looked at Mosaic as an interesting research project that um, would be able to provide a great user interface for what became the World Wide Web. So NCSA was directly linked to CERN, and I believe CERN was one of the original 12 uh worldwide research centers. Mm -hmm. So there was tremendous back and forth with CERN Switzerland and Tim Berners-Lee and, and, and NCSA. So they, you know, their charter is to just get things out in the market, right. And make things freely available. Um, but, uh, what we saw was, um, something that could become, you know, very commercially pervasive. Um, if it was commercialized. And uh, so when we approached them on an exclusive license, um, they were interested because they just wanted it to get out there fast, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, they were to end up earning millions and millions of dollars with our, with our agreement. But they also wanted to expedite getting things to market and getting their technology out there. But yeah, it was it was a research project. They had we hired some of the people on that team, and of course Netscape came in and they hired five or six guys, including uh, Mark. Right. Well, and and uh, in case you're not aware, I have spoken to some of those guys: Alex Tate, John Middlehauser, um, people like that. And and so that's why I'm specifically asking because in some in their accounts on the show and other accounts I've read, they. At sometimes it seems like they're saying that the, at the NCSA, they felt like it should be a commercial product, but the NCSA thought of it as a research product, not commercial. So when you approach the NCSA, are they do they now see the light? Do they want to commercialize it, or was that something you had to talk them into? Well, when I approached them, um, they they were very interested in uh, licensing. The hurdle I had with them was to be an exclusive licensor, mm -hmm. licensor, and um, but I immediately pledged them a million dollars to start with. I thought you only had eighty four thousand in the bank. Well, that's where the entrepreneur comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so I grabbed my biggest investor, flew him into Champaign, Illinois. He was with the Rockefeller family. So he had the Rockefeller family uh, business card. He was an investor in Spyglass. And he said he would back up the million-dollar pledge, which became a contractual commitment. Mm -hmm. And so um, you, get, you said that the sticking point was the exclusive license. Yes. You're able to land that exclusive license. Yes, and the reason... And this is the, the interesting thing. 
it wasn't that we necessarily wanted the source code because we knew we had to rewrite some of the source code. It was more to keep the big boys from trashing the market like Microsoft would ultimately do, right? So you knew Microsoft at some point would give it away with the operating system, mm -hmm. right? Or most people in our industry would know that mm -hmm. ahead of time. So what we wanted was a multi-year head start to where someone would have to come to us. I had read um, you described it as um, your your sort of dream model of this was is that uh, the spell checker and, and that is a business model because people don't know this, but in the background of all these programs, there's an I, there was a company that owned the IP to spell checker. And so everyone had to pay that wanted to put a spell checker into software. Is that how you visualized it? Similar. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, it's similar. We, we were, you know, we sacrificed building our own brand. Um, and we were almost always, I think every case we were private labeled, under the name of a, you know, someone like Microsoft, um, and uh, we became what I call a, a high volume small arms dealer. <laughs> but we remember we went on to do this with cell phones and set top boxes and. Oh yeah, we'll we'll definitely get yeah. to that. Um... So so, but that was the idea: is that we could pull that off. We could be a great high volume small arms dealer. And we knew some of these other companies were going to be um, coming around like eBay. And, and we just didn't have the capital. We didn't have access to the human resources that you need uh, to, to, do, to pull off an eBay or a Netscape um, or an Amazon. Mm -hmm. But we thought about those. And in fact, the threat of Netscape really helped us negotiate with Microsoft. Okay, well, yeah, let's let's back up okay. just for a second. So, okay, so you 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 get the exclusive license, um, and yeah. you you begin to. Uh, you said that you you you're gonna uh, you're not using the exact code because you're probably modifying it for for use with various people that you license out browsers to, right? Well, there were a bunch of reasons. Uh, typically, with um, public domain software or uh, academic software. Um, they're more interested in features than quality, right? Because um, they have no liability on quality. Um, so you have to worry about building in quality. Uh, we actually took some features out in mm. the beginning mm. to build a very commercial quality browser technology that, that someone could just relabel it or they could take our technology and add value on top of it. Right. And uh, so we had different types of what I call OEM relationships. But, yes, if you look at the code base of um, what I call the Spyglass browser a year later, mm -hmm. uh, almost unrecognizable from the code base that we licensed the year before. Interesting. So um, you begin to to do these licenses where, so like you said, you're an arms dealer, you're, you're licensing browsers, selling browsers to various people, um, customizing them based on their individual needs, these various clients that you have. Um, yeah. But at the exact same time, as we've discussed, um, uh, 
the uh, five or six guys left set went out to California to start Netscape. So, yes, as you're beginning to pursue this business, what's what are you thinking about Netscape and, and what's your relationship with them and, and how are you thinking of the industry at this point? Yeah. So this is probably where you're going to get different stories. Okay. I'm going to give you my story. Absolutely. <laughs> and, um, well, at first, um, you know, so I, my first encounter with Netscape was when they came down to Champaign and they uh, pulled out Mark and a few other guys and Jim Clark, who I had known of Jim from his days at Silicon Graphics. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jim had gotten together with another guy I know named John Doerr, who was running Kleiner Perkins. And so they instantly raised $10 million. I mean, instantly, between John and Jim Clark. And I thought, well, what they're going to do is they're going to do the take Microsoft head-on business model and make the browser um, intercede between the operating system and the human and try to take on Microsoft head-on and out Microsoft, Microsoft. And to me, that was a very sexy, um, ballsy, big, big idea. I, I was very excited about it. I didn't feel Spyglass could pull that off, right? Because we didn't, we had trouble raising, you know, a hundred thousand right. at that time. You know, we couldn't raise money then. It would have been very difficult. We were in Champagne. We didn't have a labor market to hire, you know, three, four hundred people quickly. So um, I thought they came in and I said, you know what? Um, I think these guys are actually going to help us because they're going to force Microsoft to Spyglass, which is ultimately what happened. Mm -hmm. So that's what I thought. I had, by the way, tremendous admiration um, for the smart guys. Every one of them that went over there was a smart guy. We had a few guys from that team as well um, on our team. And these were all smart kids. I'd call them between 22 and 28 years old. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them obviously went out to Silicon Valley with Mark and, uh, and then, you know, the, the one thing you'll read about is we did, um, you know, we did, uh, work out an agreement with them because we felt they took some of the code mm -hmm. and there was a lawsuit and then there was a settlement, but that settlement didn't happen till one minute after we signed a deal with Microsoft. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. We might have to get get into the chronology of that. And you're going to be the first guy to report on this, by the way. Well, hey, I'm 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 super excited. Yeah. Okay. Literally, it was a matter of minutes. All right. So. So, we signed the two major agreements. All right. So because the other thing is, is Netscape, as I've said on this show before, started out as Mosaic Communications Corporation. Yes. They have people that have worked on the same code. So so you guys are obviously concerned about um, that, just the, the IP issues and things like that. But so so you work out yes. the settlement and, and you're pleased with the settlement that you work out with them? Yes. And, and well, we were pleased because... Um, you know, they didn't know, I knew, but they were trying to cut a deal with Microsoft. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> but I knew that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I had a unproductive meeting with Jim Clark at O'Hare one night, mm-hmm. late in the night. Right. Um, and you know, I'm from New York, by the way, uh-huh. I grew up in Long Island, so I'm not always the, you know, the nicest guy. Jim, Jim is a very smart guy who kind of thought we were a bunch of young, dumb guys. Mm-hmm. So those meetings didn't go very well. And then, um, but I knew we couldn't do anything with Netscape. Um, we had, we believe we had proof. We had proof that uh, they had uh, used some of the code. And uh, so that's why we slapped the uh, lawsuit on them. But it was also to prevent them from doing a deal with Microsoft. Hmm. Because we were negotiating with Microsoft at the same time. So did, did Microsoft approach you or was this uh, – you, you've said earlier that this is a relationship that you foresaw uh, might actually happen. Yeah, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why. I thought it would happen. There's another major event here that people don't report on that played a big role in, in Netscape, Spyglass, Microsoft's life, and it was the AOL purchase of BookLink. Right. So that was the first transaction, so to speak. That was before any of these issues. And when the BookLink technology went off the market and Case took it off the market, that's when I thought Microsoft would have to come to us or they'd have to do something with Netscape. Because their their goal is, the other thing to keep in mind is they're launching Windows 95. It's their biggest release ever up to that point. It's, you know, the, the crowning achievement essentially of Microsoft at that point. Um, but they're, they're behind the eight ball, so they can't do a browser internally. They sort of have to rush it, so they're going to need a partner. Exactly. And, and Gates had a private worldwide web project called Blackbird. Mm-hmm. And Blackbird got scrapped. But it had an awful lot of resources. And he, he thought he could privatize the World Wide Web. Well, so Blackbird. Then he realized he couldn't. Then he realized with Netscape coming up, you know, hard behind his back, he realized that he had to get rid of that project. So Blackbird, um, for listeners, was sort of, if the web is open standards, things like TCP, IP, that sort of thing, the, the idea was that Blackbird would be a Microsoft sort of flavor of the same thing, but owned by Microsoft and Microsoft exactly. IP. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, my original question was, so does Microsoft come to you or do you start to send feelers out to Microsoft? Oh, they send someone to us. Mm-hmm. And um, do they uh, immediately make you an offer, or um... oh, they made, they made us a horrible offer. Yes. What was that? A hundred thousand. And I think that I read that you. So that's a flat fee, but you, I think I read, were obviously looking for some sort of a per copy royalty deal, right? That's correct. So how how do those negotiations go? <laughs> we we did get a per copy. Mm-hmm. And it was a three-year agreement. And uh, during that three-year period, um, you know, well known to everyone that they were building a clean room 
right, um, to, to build their own Internet technologies. Um, but it was a three-year agreement that, you know, went the full three years. And in fact, we expanded that agreement um, to include uh, the Macintosh platforms. Originally, Gates only wanted the, uh, uh, the Windows platform. So they came back about a year into it, and they said, ah, Netscape's making us do the, the Macintosh. <laughs> so um, so give, me the, give me the story of that chronology that you mentioned where um, you signed both deals at the same, essentially the same time. It's around Christmas, I think, or the end of the year, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm in the wrong house. To, I had the document actually in my house. Um, yeah, I think it was... Um, getting towards the cold weather. Um, and, you know, you had three parties that wanted this all to happen. Um, but, you know, uh, Microsoft had to figure out that they couldn't get anything from Netscape. Netscape, you know, figured out that we were stalling everything until uh, we got a deal with Microsoft. And then, um, you know, it literally... Uh, we even had a meeting in Chicago where I knew the meeting, we would never agree to anything because Microsoft hadn't signed yet. But then they hadn't disclosed to us they were negotiating with Microsoft, but I, I knew they were because I just say I had some moles inside Microsoft. So, uh, you, you know, it, we, all knew, we all knew what the other was looking for. But um, egos probably made the whole thing drag on an extra three to six months. Mm -hmm. And I think I also read that, that Bill Gates made you guys wait a couple days before he was signing off, too. He wasn't sure that the deal was right or something. Oh, I think he, yeah. I mean, he was trying to get a deal done with Netscape. Not, to, not necessarily to buy Netscape, but he was trying to get some technology some, you know, technology that he could improve upon, right? Mm -hmm. but, but we pointed out to him that that technology he might be getting uh, may be infringed. So that's when we had to get all these documents uh, and, you know, the two agreements had to be signed. So maybe it would have been safer for him, you're saying, to go with the people that probably have the original IP, yeah, he, 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 he couldn't take the risk of Netscape giving him something that had potential infringement um, liability. So, you know, that's why he might have taken an extra couple days. But um, I think the big issue was, um, you know, I mean, think about it. Netscape wanted to go off and do business. They had demand for their products, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a cloud that was preventing them from doing business. Um, we, we paid or pledged the million dollars, so we didn't want Microsoft and Netscape running off with something we pledged a million dollars for. And uh, uh, one of the classic moments was uh, they sent this young guy, I think with flip-flops in the winter, to Chicago to tell me that, uh, you know, they were going to destroy us financially. And I said, well, that's okay. Cause we already are. 
<laughs> so, so I mean, it, 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 there was a lot of what I call uh, posturing between the three companies. But, um, you know, once everybody kind of got what they needed, Netscape had such demand, uh, not just for their browser stuff, but they had demand for the server stuff. Right. They, they wanted to get up and going, and, and Jim Barksdale, my, my belief is when Jim Barksdale came in, he was the adult at the table. And when he came in, but he didn't want to come in until this lawsuit was resolved. Hmm. So he joined the day after, I think, we signed this uh, settlement agreement with Netscape. So... Um... And also at the same time, you're, you're you're signing the deal with with Microsoft. So when micro, when you sign the deal with Microsoft, do you essentially they've got the license for the code, and then they go off and do their thing, or do you do you sort of help them develop what what becomes Internet Explorer? Well, we were involved in the first three releases, mm-hmm. release one, two, three, um, and they had the rights. Um, to do whatever they wanted with our code. They, they had the right to add features. They had the right uh, to change things. So they had the, uh, they had pretty good freedom in that agreement where they could add value or change look and feel. Um, it was a true, what I call OEM type of transaction where they had that. And, and our teams, you know, our, they had access to our development teams for any questions they had about the browser technology. So is it your impression that from day one, they were going to give away their browser? I'm talking about Microsoft or, or did you get a sense that originally they, they were going to charge for it? Like Netscape sort of was what, what's your impression of what their, well, yeah. So they said, you know, we, we're going to charge for this. And, and my comment was, well, we have to assume you're not. Mm. And the reason is Netscape's really coming at you guys really hard. And you may feel in order to get rid of them, you've got to give it away with every copy of the operating system, which they did. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, and then they started giving away server technology, like a proxy server. Mm-hmm. You know, they would eventually even give that away. So, so that's been the Microsoft model for, you know, de- decades, right? Um, so, yeah, we assumed they would, but they had to count. We, we still had a, a per copy agreement with them. Oh, so even though, even when they do give it away for free, eventually you're still getting paid for each copy that ships with, say, Windows 95? Yeah, we got paid for every copy they shipped. Okay. And um, by the way, I don't think they ever did charge. Right. Right. No, I, I, I haven't. <laughs> That's my recollection also. But um, so does that what does that do to your business model now? Obviously, you know, Microsoft is going to be <laughs> doing a lot of copies of Internet Explorer. So that's some serious cash coming in. But also you're completely that's a big uh, monkey to be tied to. So what does that do to Spyglass as a company to do this relationship with Microsoft? Yes. Yeah, so what we did, we said, OK, Let's let's move to um, let's move to a whole new market that um, where where we we're not one. There's no one dominant operating system because that's ultimately what killed Netscape. 
right, that that Microsoft had the operating system and they had the server technology, right, that they could give away everything that Netscape had. The right? razors and the razor blades. Yeah, and and we assumed they would do whatever it takes to maintain their uh, position in the market, right? And, um, you know, my view was let's take the Microsoft money, let's take the IPO money, let's take uh, all this good times we're having for a few years and let's get ready to go to what I call, well, today they call it the, what do they call it now? The internet of everything, but I call it the things. Yeah. I call it the device market. Mm -hmm. So in 1995, uh, two years after the IPO 96, we were starting in that time frame to work on, um, making software for embedded uh, operating systems like you have on a phone or a set-top box or a satellite dish or a, a machine equipment in a, in a uh, manufacturing facility. Uh, you know, so, for, yeah, for that, that was our business model um, at that point in time. For listeners, I just want to say, because I don't know if I've ever said this on the show before, but um, uh, Spyglass actually IPOs before Netscape. You know, we've talked a lot about the I Netscape IPO, right? Um, and you had a you know a sixty percent first day pop I think um, your your stock I think went up eightfold in in the first six months of being a public company so <laughs> so you guys had sort of those heady days that you're you're talking about right just like uh, the Netscape did at the beginning yes we did um, so that what's also interesting about what you just said is um, so in the same way that in Netscape's early days they're constantly every move they make is they're making is either in response to Microsoft, in relation to what Microsoft might do, and and so at the exact same time, you're doing the same thing. You're you're trying to pivot into markets where you feel like you there's some oxygen for you guys to to carve out a niche, right? That's right. That's right. Um, yes. So in a way, um, because uh, Spyglass actually is independent longer than Netscape, you're you're more successful at surviving the Microsoft embrace than the Netscape was. Well, yes, in the sense that we transitioned, we completely reinvented the company. I mean, completely. And while we were a public company, the stock went down to $5. And uh, I believe in 97, Mm -hmm. it was $5 a share after we had done a split. Mm -hmm. So there was a two-for-one split prior when the stock was around 120. And... And then it went to 60 with the split. But then that 60 went to $5 mm-hmm. when Microsoft killed a bunch of our customers. So Microsoft didn't just kill Netscape. They killed a bunch of Spyglass customers. The people like Spry and, and people like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, FTP Software was a $600 million software company. Hmm. Borland, um, uh, quarter deck software. Mm-hmm. I mean, they destroyed companies, you know, with excess re- revenues in excess of a hundred million. So, and, and FTP software was about 500 million a year. That was a big company and they were one of our customers. So when they gave away all of their technologies, you know, getting into the 1996, 97, 98, it had a dramatic impact on our customers, which 
in turn, you know, hurt our business. And so um, at that point, we started to, uh, you know, to work on the technology for, you know, whenever you're in a market with somebody like Microsoft, you have to always think, what am I going to do next? Because if they ever decide to give something away, you're, you know, you don't have a business anymore. And uh, so we, we made this huge change. We had to get new customers. We had to build new software. We had, um, <clears throat> but we had, like I said, we had two things in 1997. We had cash and we had people that understood the internet. Mm -hmm. Those were our two uh, assets. And uh, so, and then I just had this thing that I have this tremendous aversion to failure and I, it dry, I, I just, it makes me crazy to think about it. And I said, look, we're going to get this thing back up, even if it kills us, which it almost did. And, uh, you know, by the end of 99, we were really cooking with gas. And that's, we got bought in early 2000. So you, what you're looking at here are things like, you know, um, uh, set-top, Interactive TV is still things yes. that people are pursuing. So, like, you're working with cable companies yes. to put browsers and set-top boxes. Are you also looking at things like, you know, now what we would call mobile and, you know, oh. hand computing and all sorts of devices like that? We were, we were in the first Nokia uh, intelligent phone, mm. which today you would look at that and say it's a weapon. Uh, <laughs> it was so big and heavy. But, uh, yeah, we immediately started going to the phone manufacturers, and Nokia was the first. Um, so the phone guys, we went to the, member Palm and... Yes, Handspring and... Yeah. All the hand, all those guys, we were marketing with them. I can't remember exactly which ones became customers. We also went to some of the... Um, in Japan, they had people that wanted to private label browsers for different types of equipment. Uh, I would call it more industrial types of equipment. Mm -hmm. So we had a nice business. It was uh, it was very profitable. You know, we get paid every time a device would would ship, um, and it became a nice business. And then we sold it, as you know, in, in March of 2000. March of 2000, which um, you get one of the uh, few awards I've given away on the show for hitting, timing it exactly right. Yeah. Well, to young entrepreneurs, don't let your ego get in the way of a good offer. Mm. <laughs> and you got to know when to fold them, not just when to hold them. So it, that was, uh, I think I read around a, like a two, two and a half billion dollar like stock swap or something. It was a two point four billion, um, uh, what they call stock pooling deal, mm. which in back in those days stock pooling was common instead of cash. So you would receive stock in the other guy's company, right? Yeah, and it was a European company named Open TV. However. They were really pay TV guys out of uh, South Africa, hmm. but they were traded uh, in the London Stock Exchange, um, and they had facilities in London, but um, they were really pay TV pioneers, 
and they had the satellite relationships and we had the cable TV relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's why the merger, uh, but it was an acquisition because I believe I don't, you know, it was about 55% them, 45% us. Right. Um, I want to, uh, to wrap things up, I want to, I'll finish by asking you what you're up to today and what you're interested in today. But um, in the last 15 years or so, I believe you, you were working with a company called uh, Canaxis. Yes. Um, so just give me the, you know, the, the outline of the last 15 years or so and what you've, what you've been working on. Well, ironically, uh, I was build, we built a home after we sold Spyglass. Uh, my wife and I started building a home in Scottsdale, Arizona. Mm-hmm. We were living in Chicago at the time. We built this home, and while just before the home got finished, um, in around 2001, 2002, I was recruited um, to be a board member at a company called Webplan, which was uh, later renamed Canaxis. Well, I became the CEO um, in 2012, uh, 2002. And I was the CEO for 13 years, and it's a great story. It's uh, publicly traded in Toronto, has about a $1.2 billion market cap. Mm -hmm. It's a SaaS supply chain company. But the reason I was interested in it, they had the best simulation technology I've ever seen, Hmm. which goes back to my college days. I was very interested in modeling software. And um, they're helping the world's largest companies you know, optimize the performance of their supply chains. And it's just a great company. You can see the stock's gone. It trades under KXS. Mm -hmm. And it's just been one of the, it was the number one stock on the uh, Toronto Stock Exchange last year. And then I stepped out of the CEO role uh, this past January, but I'm still actively involved. I'm the chairman of the board. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sure we could probably do another podcast on that, that interesting story, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and, I'm, and by the way, I, my wife and I started another company out in Los Angeles called MedCircle, uh-huh. and uh, it's right off the UCLA campus. And someday I'll tell you about that. But we're in stealth mode right now. Oh, so just starting, right? Yeah, we well, we product's almost ready to go. So okay, well, uh, so excited. Let me let me ask you one final question that I've asked a couple of the other guys uh, at Netscape. Um, and I think um, some of the other guys that were at Microsoft uh, working on the Internet Explorer team. In retrospect, when you look back at it, the the browser as a market, could that have been ever a market where, you know, we're still used to paying for things like word processors? We're still used to paying for apps, uh, productivity apps and things like that. Had Microsoft not done what it done, what it did? Um, could that have been this multi-billion-dollar market for just browsers? That 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 companies could have been, you know, long-term sustained businesses based off of just that application. I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, when you're in a market with a monopoly, and by the way, I'm not one of these guys that complained about Bill Gates. Mm. Because everybody wanted to be in his position. So I was never one of the crybabies. Um, we all wanted that. We all wanted a monopoly position. Well, when you're in a market with a monopoly, a lot of times you can't charge for something. 
um, because of them. But in a truly competitive market, the answer is yes. However, I think Netscape, you, 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 it's good to have something on the other side, meaning on the server side. Mm-hmm. If you have something meaningful on the server side like Netscape did and, and, and Spyglass did not, but if you did, Combined with the browser market, I think that would have been a very nice market for a long period. But because it could become commoditized by an operating system vendor, the answer is no. Right. And the reason I ask that is because if you think about like the smartphones today, like having a web browser on your smartphone is just table stakes, right? Right. Um, Versus other things that people expect and are fine with paying for. So you're saying there could have been a scenario where I would have to buy my phone and then maybe then have to pay $5 or $30, whatever it takes to get a browser on it as well. Is is that what you're saying? Like there could have been, it could have been a robust market. Well, let's take the phone. Okay. Um, It, it, you know, the phone companies, they spend a lot of money developing software guys like Blackberry and Apple. And so if you tried to get too much money for a browser, they would just do it themselves, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think it's a multi-billion dollar market. But if you attach other technology or services to where it becomes an industry standard, um, yeah, I think it could have been a standalone market. But but think about it. If you go to, like Microsoft, right? I mean, I think they would have paid us tens of millions of dollars but they wouldn't have paid us hundreds of millions, right? Mm-hmm. And they did pay us tens, mm-hmm. right? So, so they paid for it, but uh, at some point, um, they wanted control, which makes sense. And uh, they weren't going to pay hundreds of millions. So it, it, I don't think on a standalone basis, but I think if it was coupled with some other value add, then you could have had something but if you look at if you look at Netscape right away they said this this is not nearly enough we we've got to add so much value because they had that strategy of we got to take Microsoft head on and uh, as one one person said they mooned them pretty good because <laughs> they did scare them for a couple of years yeah yeah and but our goal was not so much scare anybody our goal was uh, scratch and claw and get 17 people with $85,000 in the bank with a break-even business to sell it for a couple billion. That was Our goal was more that way than it was to, you know, take Microsoft on head-on. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think it's a tough question, Brian. I, I don't know if there was enough technology to build a standalone the more I think of it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Douglas Gobeth, thank you for um, for remembering that whole story and, and for giving us... Because like I said, I have spoken to so many of the Netscape guys, and I, I just wanted to hear this side of it as well. And it, it was fascinating. It was great. Yeah, it's a great story. All right. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. 
As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.